Robots Radio presents... In 1999, director David Fincher and star Edward Norton taught the world the rules of Fight Club, and nothing was ever the same. In 2019, Diageo gives us a blended scotch whose name is on everyone's lips. The film is Fight Club. The whiskey is Johnny Walker Black. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1999 film Fight Club. Now, Brad, a few months ago, we recorded an episode that we called Movie Fights because we were talking about Star Wars and Star Wars is one of your all time favorite movies. And I was kind of, you know, meh on Star Wars. Yeah, Bob, we all know that you hate good things. It's true. It's true. So, you know, you were rather incensed throughout that whole episode, I feel like, but we we had a nice back and forth about it. Well, today, I think the tables are going to be turned a little bit, and it's not because I really, really like this movie, Fight Club. In fact, I'm just going to come out right here at the beginning and say, I really, really don't like the movie Fight Club, and I am kind of perplexed at how much people love this movie, because I just, whatever is supposed to be there, I just don't see it. And so we might end up getting into a little bit of a movie fight today because I'm just going to come right out and say it. I don't think I'm going to score this movie above a five. And if I'm being honest, it's probably going to be lower than that. Yeah, I was really surprised when you let me know that you didn't like this movie because it feels like a movie that you would like. Yeah, I completely agree, man. You know, it's directed by David Fincher, who is universally regarded as one of the best working directors today. You've got Edward Norton. You, you know, you've got Brad Pitt, who's been nominated for a number of Oscars. And yet something about it just does not stick with me. On paper, I should love this movie. And I just don't. Huh. This is one of those movies, though, where I feel like there's a really strong vocal minority of people who dislike this movie, and they dislike it for a number of reasons. And a lot of those reasons have to do with how this movie has been interpreted over the last 20 years. And part of it is because there is a subset of people who have latched onto this movie as a reason or as an excuse to promote violence in their own lives. And I actually don't fall into that camp. I don't think that this movie is, you know should be condemned because of the hate that it spawned in real life. That has nothing to do with my opinion of it. But it is really interesting to me that even among, you know, quote unquote, like cinephiles or movie critics or people who generally would be drawn to a project like this, it seems like Fight Club is one of those movies that has been made okay to hate. And yet we all know, those of us who dislike Fight Club, we all know that we are in the minority on it. So it's a really weird place to be. And hopefully, as we kind of hash out what the movie's about and our reactions to it, we can get to the bottom of what it is about this movie that I don't care for. And so maybe in order to do that, we should give a little bit of background on the film and then jump into Brad Explains. What do you say? Yeah, sounds good. So this movie was released in 1999, which means it actually is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Bum, bada, bum. I know. 1999 is a year that is getting a lot of attention right now, obviously because it's the 20th anniversary, but there are a lot of people out there arguing that 99 may have been the best year in movie history. Wouldn't you contend that it was like 1936 or something? Actually, yeah, 1939 is the one that's always been held up as like the golden standard for movie years. But it's kind of hard to argue with 99 being right there in the conversation. This is already, we're in the first season of this podcast, and this is already our second 1999 movie after American Beauty. And I honestly think that you see similar themes. You know, Lester Burnham in American Beauty is this corporate drone who has a midlife crisis. Edward Norton's character here in Fight Club is a corporate drone who's having a crisis. You know, Neo in The Matrix is a corporate drone who's going through a crisis. So it's it's very clear that cinema in 99 was trying to say something about where society was on a corporate level. Do you want to know another 1990 film about an office drone? Uh-oh. The absolute classic comedy, Office Space. Office Space. That was 99, wasn't it? Yeah, it sure was. And it was about an office drone who steals a lot of money from his company. So, I mean, was this something that was in your mind when you went into watching this movie, Brad, that we had kind of already seen American Beauty? Did the parallels stick out to you at all? They never stuck out to me while I was watching it. But, I mean, when you point them out, then, yeah, everybody was tired of their lives in white-collar jobs. 
Yep. When you look at the culture of the 90s, you look at the dot-com boom and the billionaires and and you you look at the economic success that America had as a whole and you see it in all of these major movies and by the end of the 90s we're kind of sick of it. So maybe this is a good time to kind of take a step back and see if we can wrap our heads around the enigma that is Fight Club with our favorite segment Brad explains. Yeah, so Fight Club is a movie about a man played by Edward Norton. What what's his name? He's never actually given a name in the movie. He's just listed as the narrator in the credits. Oh, see, that's I was wondering. I was like, I don't I felt like an idiot for not knowing his name, but but I guess I wasn't supposed to. So non-named narrator man has insomnia and he starts attending support groups in order to cure his insomnia because he gets to cry with people. And somehow he meets Tyler Durden, who's this really cool guy. They they meet on an airplane and they have the same briefcase and he sells soap. And he's this really cool dude who emulates everything that Edward Norton wants to be in life. And then Edward Norton's apartment gets blown up and he gets forced out of his house and he has the phone number for Tyler Durden, you know, played by Brad Pitt. So he gives him a call and he goes to live with him at this old abandoned house. And from there, it just kind of it just kind of spirals into insanity. Uh, They start this fight club where they just fight each other. And there's rules to it. You know, once once a guy gives up, you have to stop and you have to be buddy buddy afterwards. But like other than that, you just kind of beat the crap out of each other. Oh, and the most important thing is you don't talk about Fight Club (laughs) and Fight Club turns into this anarchist destroy the world, bring the world back to economic equilibrium group. And then after a while, there's this major spoiler that I'm about to give you. So if you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. But the spoiler is Tyler Durden is Edward Norton. Uh, Edward Norton character has dissociative identity disorder where he, you know, he has two personas and he slips into Tyler Durden for a time and he falls back into Edward Norton at a time. And so he he's kind of mentally insane and he starts this plan to blow up the world. And by the end of the movie, he succeeds at it. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much where the movie ends. And Brad, I think that you may have left out one crucial component of the movie, though, and that is the character of Marla, played by Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of forgot about her. Uh, <laughs> so Marla Singer is a faker who goes to all of the same support groups that our narrator, Edward Norton, goes to. And she kind of has this weird on and off relationship with him where she's always kind of angry with Edward, but she's loving on Tyler Durden. So essentially, Tyler, you know, Edward's suppressed uh, personality represents the raw sexuality that he wants to embody. And so while he's Tyler, he calls her and they hook up time and time and time again. But as soon as but Edward stays disembodied from this and when she sees him and he's not Tyler anymore, he's Edward. He treats her like crap. (laughs) I mean, he's just a real big jerk to her. I think that in a lot of ways, she's kind of the key to the whole movie, because if you follow the way the movie's laid out, Tyler Durden, you know, his alternate personality doesn't really come out or manifest completely until after Marla shows up. And I think what the director, David Fincher, is trying to tell us or the screenwriters are trying to tell us is that there's something about this woman that finally pushes Edward Norton over the edge psychologically. I suppose I didn't necessarily notice that it was right after he meets Marla. But yeah, I mean, it's right after that that he he gets on the plane to go investigate an insurance claim for his company and he meets Tyler. So, yeah, I I mean, I guess that would make sense that she is kind of the catalytic factor in this. Yeah. And yet at the same time, this is again, this is one of those areas in the movie where I feel like it's not fully developed or it's not fully given to us that she's the cause of everything, because like we see these flashes or these glimpses of Brad Pitt in the background of scenes that Fincher actually does this really brilliant thing where he'll, he'll just flash Tyler Durden into a scene for like a couple frames. So he's starting to manifest, but he doesn't really seem to become a fully fledged person until Marla shows up. All right. So here's a point where I'm going to start nitpicking because you knew it had to come eventually. Here's my problem with the Marla character. She is not really in it enough to be the most important thing about it, but she's in it too much to be pointless. And I think that the fact that she is in the movie and the fact that he does start to have his mental breakdown when he does 
kind of indicates that she has to be the cause of it, because otherwise she's a completely pointless character. Like, the movie doesn't really give a lot of attention to their relationship anyway. It's kind of something that happens on the periphery of what we think is the big story. She's gone out of the movie for long periods of time, and you start to understand eventually that it's because Edward Norton's character was blacking out when he dissociated and became Tyler. But without her in the movie, the central plot of the whole thing is guy with mental illness becomes a terrorist, which, you know, is like kind of how you explained the movie, because I think just the fact that you were able to explain the movie without her in the explanation shows that I think the movie can't decide what her role is. Is she crucial to it or is she completely unnecessary? It's kind of like they they try to wedge in how crucial the relationship is to the very end of the movie. So I guess I kind of come down in this place like she has to be the reason behind it all. And that's why Project Mayhem is chasing her and sees her as a threat. And yet, at the same time, she's given so little screen time that I actually think David Fincher, the director, does a bad job with her because he doesn't really communicate that she is the reason behind it all. I really don't see her as the cause of all this. I think that the the, the cause for all of the, the mental breakdown and the desire for masculinity, he explains that over and over in talking about the corporate culture of America, about the demasculinization of, you know, white collar jobs. Those are the causes of the problem. And the those problems rear their head when he is attracted to a woman and wants to pursue her. So she's she's kind of like the final ingredient in you know a bomb she's like the soap that that blows things up <laughs> right exactly if you, if you catch my drift I, I i think i can get down with that i guess that i'm just i'm at a loss with what to do with her as a character because like i said she's in it too much to be completely unnecessary and yet if if she's not the key to everything then she is completely unnecessary because you can tell the whole story of the movie without her No, I totally see what you're saying. I do think she's important to the movie because in a lot of ways, she is a stand-in for us. And you wouldn't necessarily think that right of the way. From the very start of the movie, she's portrayed as somebody who is antagonistic to Edward Norton. This chick, Marla Singer, did not have testicular cancer. She was a liar. She had no diseases at all. I had seen her at Free and Clear, my blood parasites group Thursdays, then at Hope, my bi-monthly sickle cell circle. And again at Seize the Day, my tuberculosis Friday night. Marla, the big tourist. Her lie reflected my lie. And suddenly, I felt nothing. I couldn't cry. So once again... I couldn't sleep. But by the end of the movie, I think her disbelief and her not understanding what's happening is kind of supposed to stand in for the audience watching and trying to figure out what the heck is happening to Edward Norton. Yeah. But I would agree that you you could probably tell the plot of this movie without including her. And so, yeah, maybe maybe she could have had a more expanded role and it could have taken the movie to a higher height. So I have a lot of problems with this movie, as I've mentioned, and as you know by this point, Brad, part of the reason that I have such problems with this movie is because I think I look around me at people who also don't like the movie, and I think that they all are motivated by agendas. And I think that there's a ton of different interpretations of why people hate this movie out there. And the th- I feel like a, I'm very alone in my dislike for the movie because I actually don't agree with any of those interpretations. I I don't agree with the agendas that people are bringing to this movie. I actually don't like it because I don't think it takes enough of a stance on anything. And so I, for a minute, Brad, I want to go through some of these interpretations that people have brought to this movie. And I want to hear your thoughts because I'm already going to say up front, like I don't, I don't think any of them are valid because I just don't think Fincher does a good job of bringing one cogent point to the movie. That is a very bold statement. I think it is. (laughs) So why don't we go through this a little bit? So the first argument against this movie that I'm seeing all over the internet right now is that Fight Club is a misogynistic movie that hates women. And there's actually a really interesting podcast out there. Uh, I think it's called The Bechtel Cast. It's based around the idea of the, the Bechtel test in movies. And they argue that this is one of those rare movies that not only do the female characters only exist to serve 
the purposes of men, but that they actually think this movie advocates hating women and that women are the cause of what's going on on screen. So, Brad, I mean, do you think that has any validity to it or where where do you agree or disagree with that? I'm I'm not sure where they would get the anti-women part. I mean, in just simple screen time, sure, women don't get much screen time in this. It's a movie about men reclaiming their masculinity from a corporate America that has neutered them, so on and so forth. So so I can understand that there aren't many women in it. But how exactly is it violent towards women? I think part of what the argument would rest on is you look at the character of Marla and one key scene. And I think I'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about the violence in the movie. But one key scene in the movie with Marla is when Edward Norton's character kind of walks in on her and Brad Pitt in the middle of having sex. And Brad Pitt's character answers the door and he's wearing rubber gloves. And it's played as like this really, really dark joke. But what's implied is that there's some sort of really sadistic and, in her case, masochistic things going on behind that door. Those images, those little glimpses into what their sexual relationship is like, coupled with the fact that Ed Norton and his character are kind of upended by the presence of a woman in his life, I think leads people to interpret the movie as, you know, women are bad. They're keeping men from achieving their masculinity and so on and so forth. Man, I hmm, I, I really don't understand that point. I mean, I guess look at, looking at the relationship, th- there's two to three times throughout the movie where, you know, Marla says that the sex is great, that she enjoys those times with him, but that he's cold and cruel to her afterwards, when they're in the kitchen afterwards. And that's because it's Edward Norton, and he's still repressing all of his masculinity. If anything, I feel bad for her for the fact that the relationship is so on and off because of his mental disorder, but that's not necessarily something that he can control, especially because he's not aware of the mental disorder yet, and I I don't know. I just, I don't understand any of those points. I think that that argument is actually a smaller piece of a larger argument about this movie, which is what you've been hinting at, which is that it's a movie about reclaiming masculinity, but that to use a very woke term, that the movie really champions a toxic form of masculinity. And I actually don't agree with that take either. And here's why. The argument goes that the movie kind of presents Ed Norton's character and people like him as these sort of corporate drones. And Ed Norton even says, like, we are we're 30 year old boys. We're like man children. And the character of Tyler Durden is an invention by Ed Norton that is a more virile masculine persona because he feels like he's been neutered by society. But this is the problem I have with the movie. We actually don't really have any indication that Ed Norton's character is this sort of sniveling, terrified, socially inept boy. Like even before Tyler Durden shows up, he seems pretty capable. Like he knows how to hold his own. He knows how to dislike his boss and be snarky towards him. So if this is supposed to be a situation where Ed Norton invents a character who's nothing like him, then I actually don't think they did a good enough job portraying that if that's what they were trying to do. Like, I will say that I think maybe the movie intends to take that route. Even Tyler Durden at the end of the movie, he even says, I am everything that you want to be. I look the way that you want to look. I have sex the way you want to have sex. And so this is where I differ with a lot of people on this movie is that I don't dislike it because I disagree with what it says. I just I dislike it because I don't think it does a good enough job at actually getting any of these points across. If it actually was a movie that I thought hated women, then I could at least disagree with it on moral or philosophical grounds. But I don't think that it actually takes enough of a stance on anything for me to like rail against it. Well, I think the key overarching point that kind of ties the entire movie together is the anarchist agenda that Tyler Durden continues to promote. That, you know, we've been tied down by modern society, these white collar jobs, this consumerism mindset We have to throw all of those things away and we have to be willing to lose even our lives to fight, you know, this. I I think it kind of ties together the entire movie, even the the picture of toxic masculinity. And the interesting thing is, I think by the end of the movie, Edward Norton's character would also condemn the masculinity that is proposed in the movie. Yeah, I think he I think he does see like the the flaw or the error in his sort of deranged thinking because he sees how I mean there's no humanity behind it anymore. So I think you're right. Right. 
Do you think that the movie is is like pro anarchy? I think it is. I, I think by the end of the movie, you kind of get this sense of even though Edward tried to stop the bombing, you see the final scene of the movie is he and Helena Bonham Carter holding hands, watching the world end around them. And you kind of get this sense that they have an opportunity to restart together. Hmm. And I think I think that's the entire point of the movie is that through anarchy, we each have an opportunity to reinvent ourselves, to restart our own lives. It may not be as a toxic man or as a woman who's addicted to going to support groups. And in the end, even though certain parts of the anarchy it might condemn, I, I think it's trying to say that anarchy is correct. You have to blow things up to restart. I think my problem with that view, though, is, like you said, Ed Norton's character, he kind of wakes up enough by the end of the movie to understand that the path that he's gone down on this pro-anarchist rant has led to something that he doesn't even recognize, which is this kind of domestic terrorism plot. And so it's kind of hard for me to say that the movie is pro-anarchy because the hero of the movie is an insane person. I don't know that his goal all along was domestic terrorism. Like, he was just a crazy person, and I think the way that his insanity came out was in this character of Tyler Durden, and Tyler Durden hated corporate America. Like, I don't know that that's necessarily part of who Edward Norton's character is. Yeah, I think Edward Norton's entire goal for the movie was to bring unity between the violent and the peaceful side of himself. Hmm. That it was because of being neutered by this, you know, corporate America that he it brought out his violent side in a very sharp and hurtful way. And so the whole goal of him was kind of this Nirvana type of I need to unify myself in order to move forward in my life. And I think you see that unification when he's finally able to kill Tyler Durden. Mm. But I think Edward Norton is looking for inner stability and inner peace. And the only way he can do that is if he becomes so committed to inner peace and so committed to moving forward as a holistic person that he's willing to die for it. Mm. And so when he shoots himself through the mouth... The reason it kills Tyler Durden is because Tyler knows that that goal is complete, that he can move forward as a holistic person, and he's never going to let his soul be sucked away by a white-collar job or, you know, Swedish furniture or this, you know, the lure of consumerism ever again. I think that what you're getting at is actually really similar to one take I heard on what the movie is, <laughs> and I really like it because I think that you can kind of make a good connection with it. I heard a few people argue that this is just a really absurd uh, romantic comedy. Huh. I actually think that when you look at this movie through the lens of the romantic comedy, then you can kind of see everything as a metaphor. Wait, wait, wait a second. Hold, hold on. I'll tell you. We're going to split up the week, okay? You take lymphoma and tuberculosis. You take tuberculosis. My smoking doesn't go over at all. Good, fine. Testicular cancer should be no contest, I think. Well, right? technically, I have more of a right to be there than you. You still have your balls. You're kidding. I don't know. Am I? No. No. What do you want? I'll take the parasites. You can't have both the parasites, but why don't you take the blood parasites? I want brain parasites. I'll take the blood parasites, but I'm going to take the organic brain dimension, I'm okay? Like you can't have the whole brain. So That's far, you have four. I only have two. Okay. Take both the parasites. They're yours. Even Edward Norton's insanity becomes a metaphor. You know, in the last 10 minutes of the movie, you see him on, like, security cameras fighting Tyler, and then they'll cut to the, the objective camera, the security camera, and he's just punching himself in the face. And one of my favorite interactions with Marla is when he sends her off, and he says, you know, they're coming for you. And she says, like, why do they want to come for me? And and he says, because they see you as a threat. And I think when you when you look at this as... A guy who doesn't know how to interact with women coming to terms with how juvenile he is, how violent his impulses are, how he has to kind of put his own wants and desires to death in order to be a good boyfriend. Then I think this movie actually kind of works. And that's that's coming from a guy who thinks the movie doesn't work at all. So I think you might be onto something <laughs> there, Brad. All right. So what do you say we stop at this point? I have a lot more to say on this movie, but I think in order to do that, we need to drink some whiskey. So what do you say we try this Johnny Walker Black? Let's get to it. Hi, I'm Sebastian Azaro 
and I'm inviting you to the Hidden Pixels podcast, a show exploring those gaming stories you might have missed on your first playthrough, whether it's a side character's dark past or a small piece of information that changes the entire fictional universe, I'd like to share with story lovers and gamers alike. From Nintendo to Bethesda to your favorite indie games, we're looking at all different types of series to find these hidden stories. So join us every two weeks on the Hidden Pixels podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcatcher. I can't wait to share these stories with you. Thanks. All right, so today we are checking out Johnny Walker Black. Now, Johnny Walker is probably the most recognizable name in Scotch, especially in America. Johnny Walker is a line of blended scotches. Now, in the world of scotch, you generally have blended scotches or you have single malt or single grain scotches. And the word single, if you see it on a scotch bottle, means that it came from one single distillery. So with Johnny Walker, they they own a ton of different distilleries and they're mixing their product to try to achieve a consistency. A lot of scotch purists will tell you that they don't drink blended scotches, that they only drink single malts. But I, I think that you can make a good product out of blended scotch and Johnny Walker is kind of proving that you can become a juggernaut with that. Yeah, as as a as a scotch purist myself, I, I'm quite disgusted that we we would be drinking such a product. Such today. swill. <laughs> so uh, Johnny Walker Black is actually the second from the bottom in the Johnny Walker line. Red Label is their most inexpensive product. They have the black, they have a double black, and then they've got I think like a a platinum and a green and then the highest is the blue label, which for a fifth will set you back like 200 and some odd dollars. That is a lot of money. It really is. Johnny Walker Black in the state of Ohio will run you $37.99 for a fifth. In the world of scotch, that's not too terrible. Uh, I know that for the bourbon world, we've talked about our categories of like $10 to $20, $20 to $30, 30 you know, so on and so forth. This really is on the lower end of scotch. So if I'll tell you right now, if this has a good, you know, flavor profile and consistency, I would probably give it a higher value on value score because this is a decent price for scotch. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's get into it, Brad. What are you picking up on the nose of this Johnny Walker Black? You know, I you get a little bit of that trademark scotch scent, but there's a lot of sweetness. I'm getting little hints of vanilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's an extremely sweet smelling scotch. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm not getting a ton that jumps off of this that makes me think it's unique. And that's, you know, that comes from the fact that this is a mass produced product. They are achieving a kind of consistency across the board. But if you gave me a glass of this and a glass of the monkey shoulder we had a few months ago and a glass of standard Glenmore and G10 and you asked me to nose all of them, I don't know that I would be able to tell any discernible differences. It just tastes like a standard bottle of scotch to me. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I think there's a little bit of an ethanol smell there that you don't get with older scotches. Mm. But overall, it's decently pleasant. I would probably give it a six and a half on the nose. Yeah, I'm going to give it a six. I'm not, like you said, it's pleasant. I'm not turned off by it or anything, but it is just a standard inoffensive scotch. Yep. Why don't we go ahead and give it a sip? Wow, that's actually pretty decent. Yeah, I'll tell you what, up front, it is really, really sweet. Like, I can't remember us drinking a scotch that's this sweet that wasn't, like, a finished scotch, like some of these Glenmorangies we've had. Yeah, right on, Right as it hit my tongue, I felt like I got a tiny hint of brown sugar. Yeah, me too. Like, almost a bourbon-y flavor profile. And then on the finish, not, not so much the finish, but as it hits the back of your mouth as you, like, move it across your palate, I get a little bit of black pepper. It's not so much an alcohol burn, but it's, it's a little bit of spice um, and a little bit of that classic butterscotch sweetness as well. I will say this is really, really thin, and it's just not very complex. It's really sweet up front, and then right when you go to swallow, you get a little bit of spice. And other than that, it's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I would give it a 7 on the taste. It, it, it definitely ups its game from the nose a little bit. It is a little bit thin. We're clocking in right at about 80 proof here, so it's it's not going to punch you in the tongue. But yeah, seven. I'm going to give it a seven as well, and I recognize the limitations of this thing. Like you said, it's 80 proof. It's watered down. It's thin. It's not complex. This is a scotch for the person in your life that doesn't spend a lot of money on whiskey. 
Like, if you want to introduce somebody to scotch, here you go. It's sweet, and it goes down easy. But I'll tell you what, I like that. Once in a while, you just want to drink something that's easy to drink. And I think this fits the bill. I'm going to give it a 7 on taste. Yeah, honestly, I as I'm drinking this, this is probably the easiest drinking scotch I've had. It, it goes down smooth. It's not offensive. And it it just has hints of that trademark scotch flavor to it yeah. that I think make it a great introductory scotch. It's definitely a gateway scotch for sure, especially if you are someone who likes bourbon like Brad and I do, because we're picking up on some of those notes that you only really get in bourbons. So it's it's this nice sort of marriage between the two. Brad, what do you think about the finish on this? The finish is beautiful. Like you said, there's that little hint of spicy kind of peppery smoke. My struggle with the finish is that I'm not getting any of the trademark scotch dragon breathing fire smokiness <laughs> right. that I want. And so I, I'm i going to lower my, my finish score to a six because it, it finishes nicely. It doesn't sit on the palate for too long or anything like that. But man, I miss that, that smoke that I want to breathe. Yeah, this is definitely not a peated scotch. I'm actually going to give it a seven on the finish. And here's why. I think Brad and I have both indicated that like if if we had to pick between a super long finish and a super short finish, like we would rather have the one that disappears quickly. Just because if you drink a rye that's super potent, that flavor is in your mouth for way too long. This finish disappears really quickly. There's a little bit of spice. It doesn't last very long, but it's pleasant. And it makes you, it leaves you wanting to drink more. And I think that says a lot about this whiskey. So I'm going to give it a seven on the finish. What do you think about balance, Bob? Yeah, so overall balance, we're talking about the nose, the taste, and the finish together. I actually think this should score really highly, Brad, because nothing really stood out in a bad way. With some of these lower proof bourbons and the mass produced quality of them, sometimes we have a really harsh nose or the finish is really gross, but... Everything was pleasant all across the board, and I think that's actually saying a lot. You know, as I nose this again, it reminds me a little bit of the Redbreast 12 that we, we drank during the Amadeus episode. And at that point, I actually said that that Irish whiskey reminded me a little bit of scotch because it had some smoke to it. And I think this is a scotch that reminds me of Irish whiskey. It's very bright. It's, it's light on the palate from beginning to end. It's just an enjoyable experience. So I'm going to give it an eight on balance. Yeah, I was actually thinking the exact same thing, that it does remind me of the red breast. It, it has that nice, bright, you know, tones to it. I'm, I'm really enjoying it as well. Uh, I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the balance. I think it's really solid. Seven and a half. Okay. And that brings us to our last category. And again, that is value. Now, we've already stated that this fifth of whiskey will put you back $37.99 in our home state of Ohio. It may be higher or lower, depending on where you're listening. Brad, what do you think of this at the price point of $38? I think that's a really solid value. You know, like I said at the start, this is on the lower end of the scotch spectrum. I mean, if you're looking to get an above average to solid scotch, you're going to spend $80 to $90. So if you can spend just under $40 and get something that is an easy sipper, something you can introduce your friends to and share easily without worrying about your, your wallet, I mean, I think this is a solid value. I'm going to give it an eight on the value. So I actually really struggle with doing value on scotches because I think in the world of bourbons, for the most part, bourbons are still pretty fairly priced. And with scotches, I just don't think they are. You know, your your cheapest scotches that are just absolute bottom dweller swill, those are never going to be higher than a $15 per bottle price point. But your first decent scotch is really going to set you back about $40. And I really struggle with that price point because you can get a darn good bourbon for $25 or less. And I, I hate to compare across markets, but this is where I struggle with the value is, are we measuring how fair the market is? Are we measuring, you know, how does this fit in when you know that all scotches cost 40 so for this to be 38 is a good value? I don't know if I can give it a super high score. I just, I struggle with paying that much money for a, what what is at best a mid-level whiskey. So I'm going to give it a six on value. I suppose when you talk about it that way, I can understand why you give it a six. But I guess for me, I just, I'm trying to just give it a score based on the whiskey market as it is. Yeah. Scotch is going to be more expensive. Would I like for that to not be true? Yes. Do I think that you're right, that it's overpriced? Yes. But based on how much scotch costs nowadays, I would say that $37.99 is a decent value. 
You know, being on some forums online and seeing people talk about the way that bourbon pricing has gone up exponentially just in the last five, 10 years, you start to hear about the idea of a price bubble. And all of the advice that I hear is don't buy bourbon at secondary prices. If someone is jacking a bottle of Weller Antique up to $150, the market response is just don't buy that because the more you do it, the more you encourage prices to go up. And so I think in the spirit of Fight Club and Anarchy, I just I want there to be a market correction on whiskeys costing this much, because if you just put a glass of this in front of me and said, is this a $40 whiskey? I would say absolutely not. And just because the market right now says all whiskeys should be $40, I don't think that means that we as consumers need to pay that much out of pocket for it. So I just I can't I can't go higher than a six. Call the National Bank of Scotland. Robert (laughs) Book from the Film and Whiskey podcast has announced that the price of scotch will come down. Break the bubble. That's right. Hashtag break the bubble. (laughs) All right, Brad, what are you coming out to as a final score on Johnny Walker Black? My final score is a 35, Robert. And my final score is a 34. So that's putting us out to a 34 and a half or a 69 out of 100. So yeah, we're we're in between like that two thirds and that upper quarter mark. And I think that's a pretty fair place for this to be. This is not an exceptional whiskey, but I'm actually way more impressed with this than I thought I would be. Yeah, I think this is a solid, solid scotch. But I will say it pales in comparison to the perfection that David Fincher brought about with his movie Fight Club. Oh, I don't know about all that, Brad. I think we're going to have to argue it out. <laughs> Let's get to it. So that was Johnny Walker Black Label, an above-average scotch. It's a good introductory, easy sipper, you know, gateway into this world of scotch. An above-average scotch for a below-average movie. Ooh, see, that's where we have problems. Shots fired. (laughs) But before we get into fighting about the movie, I was kind of curious, Bob, what did you think about the performances of the actors in this movie, primarily speaking of Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, and Helena Bonham Carter? Yeah, so... I realize that my my beef with this movie is not with the actors at all. It's mostly with the script. And so I have to mention the script when I talk about the actors, because I think the actors do the very best they can possibly do with what they're given. The nature of this movie having a huge twist at the end means that they kind of have to play the movie like they're they're holding their cards close to their chest. You know what I mean? And I think they do a brilliant job with that. Edward Norton... He never tips the scales into being like the I'm crazy, I'm deranged kind of person. He just seems like a guy who wants to give the world the finger. And I think the idea of anarchy that you talked about in the first part, Brad, really fits his performance here. He's not so much a villain as he just is a guy who doesn't care. And I think he really walks that line really, really well. Ed Norton does this thing a lot with his performances where he knows that his reputation as a real life person is that he's kind of a snooty, arrogant jerk. And so I think sometimes he leans into that in his performances. And I think he does that here. He's playing a guy who who taunts the world, who wants you to think that he's a jerk. And it's a brilliant performance, in my opinion. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think that if Edward Norton could be anybody in all of his performances and all movies that he's ever done. I think he would want to be the Edward Norton that he is in Fight Club because he gets to narrate. He gets to dive deep into the reasons behind why he's doing things. And he he really gets to, to just dive into this character with wild abandon. And I, I think he does a phenomenal job at it. And then on the other extreme, we have Brad Pitt. And I actually think Pitt is really, really good in this movie as well. The problem with Pitt's character, in my opinion, is that because we find out that he's kind of an invention, we don't really find out much about who Tyler Durden is. And again, at the end of the movie, it doesn't matter so much because we find out he was never real, but he kind of only exists to set up things Ed Norton's character does. And I think Brad Pitt does such a great job with his physicality, um, with his sort of like, I don't care attitude. And he's doing the same thing Ed Norton is doing is that he's playing on his public perception of being like the pretty boy who has it all. And it's a really smart and clever way to lean into the character. And so I think that Brad Pitt's great. I just don't know if I love the way his character is written. See, I think his character is written perfectly because it's a perfect mirror for Edward Norton to gaze into every time they're together. I I think that his character is written in such a way that 
he he draws out the inner depths of who Edward Norton is and challenges all the preconceived notions that Edward Norton probably was challenging in his own mind, but they get, you know, embodified through Tyler Dirt. Um, and then with Helena Bottom Carter, I think that we've talked about her a little bit. I think she's great. And I think the sign of how good she is, is that I wanted more of her in the movie. And I really hate that this movie doesn't give us more of her in the movie. I will honestly say, I think Helena Bonham Carter is a brilliant actress. She, in every role that I ever see her in, she throws herself with passion and vigor into what she's doing. And I would agree, there's a part of me that wants more of her in Fight Club. But I think the reason we don't see more of her is because this isn't about her journey. Sure. This movie is wholly about Edward Norton's journey to find unity in his soul. And granted, I think she's a big part of that and perhaps could have been given a bigger role in the movie to show what her part was in that. But she really is one of the storylines that comes to define Edward Norton's life. You know, and I think that actually makes a perfect segue into the next thing I want to talk about, because you said that this is a story of Edward Norton's sort of quest for redemption for his soul. And that leads me to the question of the violence in the movie. I don't think we can really go any farther without talking about how violent of a movie this is. And it's not violent in the sort of like war epic way or the Quentin Tarantino way where people's heads are getting blown off. But it's it's about what fists can do. And it's about what attitudes can do. It's just a violent movie all around. And I guess my question is, does the violence in this movie have a purpose? And I started thinking about this and I thought of a few scenes in the movie that stuck out to me that I keep thinking about afterwards. And the first one is where Edward Norton shows the guy in his office the mouthful of blood that he has from the fights and how he's showing off how masculine and how much he doesn't care through blood. And obviously all of the fight club scenes are incredibly violent. The domestic terrorist plot, the blowing up of buildings is a violent act. But I think most importantly, the scene that I struggle with the most, and I want to come back to it, is that sort of rubber gloves scene with Marla, because it's played as a really twisted joke, but it's it's a peek into their relationship. And I think this whole movie, in a way, is built around sadistic and masochistic acts. It's built around people being violent to others and allowing others to be violent to them. And so I guess my question to you, Brad, is do you think the violence in this movie serves a purpose? I think that the violence in this movie serves to show a contrast to the clean-cut life that Edward Norton lives, that there's there's this kind of understanding in the American culture that death isn't a normal part of our lives, that that we don't often see violence, we don't often see blood, we don't often see these terrible things. And you even get a sense of that with the violence of the car accidents that Edward Norton, it's his job to go investigate. You know, and he talks about like, well, if they decide that the cost of a recall is, you know, less than the cost of leaving them out there, then they're just going to leave them out there. And so... What you know, why would they ever do a recall if you know who cares that people are actually dying? And so you kind of get this sense right from the start that white collar corporate America has a complete disconnect from violence, from blood, from death. And so with that, Edward Norton is continually trying to tap into what does it mean to be a human being? And I think one of the answers to that question is to be a human being means that you will experience suffering through the form of violence. And so throughout the movie, you continually get these reminders that violence is not an antithesis to the human being. It's actually a very core component to who human beings are at this point in our you know, evolution. Yeah, I actually I actually agree with almost everything you're saying. And I think that if we're going to go down this road of how to interpret the violence in the movie and we go with your interpretation that the movie's about. Edward Norton getting his soul kind of redeemed, then I think in a way the violence in this movie has that sort of effect. It's almost like this purifying force. And when you watch the movie, I think the thing that stood out to me this time around watching the film is how much the violence isn't about inflicting it on others, but allowing it to be inflicted on yourself. Like we mentioned earlier, that that final closing scene where Edward Norton is beating himself up on camera and then he shoots himself in the face. It seems like the violence is supposed to be some kind of metaphor for like 
you allow these bad things to happen to you and then you come out the other end a better person. I actually think it's a really, really, I don't know quite what they're trying to do with that metaphor. And it seems like the whole ethos of the fight club itself, the rules that they put in place are like being Zen enough to allow yourself to get beat up. Like I think back to that montage where the guy's spraying the priest with a hose and like that whole challenge, (laughs) that whole challenge was like, go incite somebody and then let them beat you up. So it's really weird because the violence isn't so much in this movie about inflicting it on other people as allowing it to happen to you. Yeah, and if you look at the the uh, moral outlook of the movie or the moral schema that it offers, you see that Edward Norton falls into trouble not when he's fighting other people. It's when he beats the living crap out of a guy who is tapping out. You know, he breaks the rule of Flight Club because normally in Fight Club they show – how as soon as somebody taps out, you know, they they stop fighting, they hug each other, they smile, they're, you know, they're almost brought to true life through the violence. But it's when the violence is taken beyond its purifying, you know, measure and it's forced into a into a dominant sense, that's when violence becomes bad in the eyes of the movie. I felt like putting a bullet between the eyes of every panda that wouldn't screw to save its species. I wanted to open the dump valves on oil tankers and smother all those French beaches I'd never see. I wanted to breathe smoke. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I, I had that scene circled as well. He broke the moral code which is Fight Club is less about taking your frustrations out on the world as it is about allowing those violent impulses to make you someone better. But here's where I struggle with the movie, and I do think that David Fincher being a fantastic director, I can't let him off the hook because I think that he just muddies whatever point he's trying to make here. Because the last act that we see in the movie is the buildings getting blown up. And that is an act of violence upon others. Now, they might try to justify it in that it's against corporate America, but I really struggled with the end of the movie and how to frame that in the larger context of what they were trying to argue. I think one of the key components of that, though, is the fact that they say not a single person is supposed to die in these. You know, we control the security. Nobody's going to die. We're literally just trying to strike a blow at the system, at the man, and not any individual human beings. I, I think, if anything, when you look at the agenda of the movie, it wouldn't say that there are any bad human beings. There are simply sleeping human beings who have been lulled you know, into this false sense of security by the world, and that what we need is to wake all these humans up. Yeah, I get that. I just... The thing I keep coming back to with this movie is that every single angle that it tries to take, it just doesn't stick the landing on. Like, is this a movie about repressed masculinity? Is this a movie about men's inability to interact with women? Is this a movie about corporate America? Is it a satire of corporate America? Is it about violence? Like, it never really takes a stance on any of these things. And I keep coming back to, Brad, off air, you were telling me about how the book Fight Club ends. And I'm wondering, could you share with us the ending of the book? Because I think it would have made a better ending for the movie. Yeah, so the book actually ends in a manner in which we kind of see that Edward Norton is sucked back into the system for the fact that, you know, the the book kind of ends in metaphorical language. He's talking about, you know, meeting God and being in heaven and that it's an Old Testament heaven with all sorts of angels and stuff. But but what he's actually talking about is he gets put into an insane asylum at the end. And that he's being fed these pills to keep him sane. And that, you know, he's basically put into prison, uh, you know, a prison of sorts. And so while the book does end with him blowing things up, it also ends with him being put into an insane asylum. And you, it's, a, it's a curious change to switch from that ending to what they give you in the movie. Yeah, and I think what, you know, what some people would argue is what we have in the movie is more ambiguous and therefore it's better. But I actually disagree with that because I think this movie is at its most successful when it's being a satire. Because there's actually some really, really funny scenes. Almost all of Ed Norton's interactions with his boss are hilarious. 
And I think this movie does a really good job when it's indicting corporate America. And when the overarching theme of the movie is, look at what putting people into boxes and cubicles does to the human psyche. That's actually a way better movie, in my opinion. And I think if we had gotten the ending where Edward Norton's character is in an insane asylum, then the satire becomes complete. Like it's a it's an it's a overarching theme, which is look at how crazy corporate America has driven this guy. And so I guess my question to you, Brad, is do you think this movie would have been better served with a different ending? And also, do you see this movie as a satire? Well, I think the movie is a satire of corporate America, but I I think that the ending that we have does kind of answer the question that you asked of, we do see an insane person who blew up a bunch of buildings in an act of domestic terrorism. You know, we don't necessarily have to see him in a mental ward in order to know that he was crazy and did crazy things. But I I think the other part of it is from a, from a cinematographical, if that's a word, (laughs) From a from a cinematography standpoint, David Fincher embraces the anarchist mindset in the way he makes this film. You know, he just doesn't give an F what people think. The only thing he is interested in is making sure that you don't find out that he has dissociative identity disorder too early. And that's about it. Other than that, the way he films the movie is just kind of this giant, I don't care what you think. I'm going to embrace anarchy in the way I make this movie. And so I I think that might be what's frustrating you so much about the movie. See, and I think that that's brilliant. And I kind of wish that this movie had a little bit more of that, for lack of a better phrase, like that FU attitude towards the audience. And I think that what really is so frustrating is that I can see in this movie a great movie. And it just... The choices that were made from a director standpoint, the choices that were made from a plotting standpoint, the way that the twist was handled, I think that it just muddied up what this movie was actually trying to say. And, you know, the the author, Chuck Palahniuk, the way that he got the idea for Fight Club, and I read this on the Internet, so take, you know, take with this what you will. But he got the idea for Fight Club because he had gotten beaten up like on the street. And then the next week when he went to work. He noticed that even though his face was black and blue and he had cuts and stuff all over his face, nobody would even mention to him, like, what happened to your face? And instead, they would just fall back on the standard, like, oh, how was your weekend? And he thought it was so funny and so ironic that this guy could be standing in the middle of corporate America with a face full of blood and that we have been so brainwashed and conditioned to just not even respond to it, that that was the impetus for Fight Club. And I thought... That is such a cool idea for a book, for a movie. And I wish that they had leaned a little heavier into the hypocrisy of corporate America aspect of things and less into the weird sexual dynamic, less into the soap making and terrorist plots and things like that. Because I I feel like what they were going for here was a satire and it could have been a great satire and they just didn't quite stick the landing. You can look at it as, yeah, he's being an anarchist. And I actually see it the other way, which is Fincher is known for being such a meticulous, demanding director. And I think this is one of those rare instances where he was just a little sloppy. You know, and, and when you look, I don't think that a filmmaker should be held responsible for the way his or her work is interpreted, right? Like, it's not his fault that people read this movie and think that it encourages violence. It's not his fault that, like, a generation of bros out there thought Fight Club was the coolest thing because they think it advocates violence. But I also think it's a little bit of an indictment of him as a filmmaker that he wasn't able to make whatever point he was making clearly and cogently enough that we actually see very clearly that this is not an encouragement of that. Does that make sense? It, I mean, it kind of does. I just think that the the goal of the movie was to show the descent into madness that Edward Norton goes through. And so in a lot of ways, we see that through the lens of anarchy. And so I don't think Fincher wants to give us a streamlined picture of Project Mayhem, of Fight Club, of any of that. I think he wants to give you that picture through Edward Norton. And he announces that at the very start of the movie when he's talking about insomnia. And he says, you know, I never know when I'm awake 
or when I'm asleep. I'm always struggling to know what time zone I am in. I'm always struggling to figure out, you know, where I'm going or why, why am I suddenly at work? And I think that you kind of get those concepts embodied in his film style. Yeah, and I think part of that is the, the decision to make it be told through the point of view of an unreliable narrator. I'm sure this worked really, really well in the book, but I don't think that Edward Norton is presented as unreliable enough that people didn't watch this movie and think that he's some sort of hero. And so that's the that's kind of the danger to me. It's it's kind of the same thing we see with Martin Scorsese and the way that he portrays you know the protagonists of his movies. When you're not reading the themes of the movie, when you're not understanding that, no, actually, violence is bad and that this movie is not encouraging it, then it becomes really easy to think, oh, this is encouraging it because it's not condemning it. And so, like I said, I don't think we should hold Fincher responsible for people not being able to read deeply enough. But I also think that it's it's uncharacteristic for him to put together a movie that comes across this sloppy. See, I guess I don't see exactly where you're saying that it's sloppy. What what In what ways, like what scenes, what... What exactly would you say makes this movie sloppy? Because in my mind, I feel like this is a very tightly wound movie that moves sharply from scene to scene. So this might be a really good segue into our final scores. Here's here's why I dislike this movie so much. I have kept my cool about this movie throughout the podcast, not because I, I don't hate this movie. I just don't think it's that good. And I don't understand why people like it so much. And the reason I say that is we find out at the end of the movie that Tyler Durden isn't real. Edward Norton's character has been basically blacking out for extended periods of time, traveling the country while dissociated and in the persona of Tyler Durden. And it sort of helps explain the fact that throughout the whole movie to this point, there have been huge jumps in the narrative. And so like when you were saying the movie moves sharply from scene to scene, I think you're right. It moves sharply and it actually moves too sharply because they don't we don't have a really good idea of the progression of time. You know, all of a sudden he's living in Tyler Durden's condemned house. And I'm kind of wondering, like, is any of this real? Is he really like this seems like an absurdist kind of surreal movie. And maybe that was all in his head. We watch Fight Club sort of be birthed. And then in the next scene, there's dozens and dozens of people in it. And then at the end of the movie, all of a sudden there's thousands and thousands of people in Project Mayhem. The the movie is told the way it is for a reason, so that we can find out alongside Edward Norton and have the shock that he has. Yes, you do. Why would anyone possibly confuse you with me? I, I, I don't know. You got it. No. Do not with us. Say it. Say it. Because we're the same person. That's right. We are the all singing, all dancing crowd. I don't understand this. You were looking for a way to change your life. You could not do this on your own. All the ways you wish you could be, that's me. But I think that's a gamble that just doesn't pay off because I got to the point where I was like, what is happening in this movie? Why aren't we being given any information? And when we got to the end of the movie and the big reveal is given, it just didn't justify to me what I felt like. I felt like I was being tortured watching this movie. Like I was being punished as a viewer. And David Fincher was purposely withholding any key bit of information that would have made the movie make any sense. And so when they finally throw us a bone at the end of the movie... It wasn't enough to satisfy the hour and a half to two hours I spent being confused up to that point. We have to wait so long in the movie to get the twist that by that point, I didn't even care how the movie ended. I was just like, none of this makes sense. There are huge gaps in logic. There are huge gaps in the plot. And I know how it ends because I've seen it before. And I still don't think that it explains away all of the problems with the plot mechanics. The the twist the twist just doesn't work for me the way that like the sixth sense works. Yeah, see that I think that's where we're going to find our final disagreeing point. What what you're saying kind of reminds me of another movie that I watched called The Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. And in that movie, everything about that movie is super depressing and super sad, and then at the very end of the movie, you get one little uplifting thing that's supposed to make up for all the depressing crap that went on for the other three hours of the movie, and it just wasn't <laughs> enough. It, it didn't mm. make the movie good for me. So would you say that's pretty much what you're saying 
is for Fight Club. All the suspense, all the drama, all of the confusion isn't worth it once you find out that he has dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. And I would take it one step further to say that I didn't even feel suspense or drama because we need information as the audience to feel suspense. You know, we talked about what suspense is in our Vertigo episode with Hitchcock. The audience gets in suspense when they know something that the characters don't. And that's not the case here at all. And in fact, the the audience is the last people in the movie to find out what's going on. And I really hated the fact that it wasn't even like they left us breadcrumbs that we could put the whole puzzle together. It was literally like an exercise in, haha, I gotcha. This was this was all fake all along. And I just I really strongly, strongly dislike this movie, Brad. Man, and that's that's where literally everything you just said, not only do I think it's wrong, I think it's objectively wrong. Yeah, I think that most <laughs> of the world disagrees with me. And so most of the world is going to hate me when I say this, but my final score on the film Fight Club is a three and a half out of ten. Oh, Bob, I, I, man. I just think that it's a movie that doesn't execute what it sets out to do. It's a mess. It's a muddled mess of a movie. And because it has talented people behind it, doesn't make it a good movie. And I think they really could have trimmed it up. They could have edited it to reflect more of the satire elements. And this and this probably could have been a movie that I'd give an eight, eight and a half to. I genuinely don't understand how you come to that point. Because especially, you know, this is my third time through watching the movie. I do think there are a massive amount of breadcrumbs that even I remember the first time I watched the movie, I remember seeing the single image, you know, flash in of Brad Pitt when he sees Marla and little things throughout the movie that when as soon as they revealed that he had the dissociative identity disorder, I was like, oh, like that's what's been going on. You know, when Tyler is at the bottom of the stairs and he says to him, hey, don't you talk to her about me? You know, don't you dare talk to her about me? All of a sudden, that clicks in your brain. You go, oh, like that's what was going on. That's why he was, you know, just staring in a bed while Tyler was having sex with her. Right. But and I, so I, I don't think that there's no breadcrumbs. Like there's definitely breadcrumbs that reveal that Tyler's not real, but they don't they still don't explain the meaning or the plot of the movie. Like, what is it all for? What's it all about? And I think that's the frustrating thing is like it's almost like the twist is a distraction and David Fincher's kind of like, here, if I if I do something clever and make you see that this guy was crazy and Tyler Durden wasn't real, then I don't have to put the effort into actually explaining the meaning of all of it. Like, I still wonder why we went through what we went through. What was the point? Is it a movie about masculinity? Is it a movie about violence? What is the movie about? And I don't think that just tacking on a twist ending actually makes the movie have a point. It's just not worth my time, I think, to go back and revisit this movie again and again. It's a three and a half for me. Bob, I think that you are clearly experiencing some sort of trauma and that (laughs) you need to experience the spiritual unity that Edward Norton finds by the end of the film. I need to start a Project Mayhem. I think you do. I will be the first one to sign up. Uh, but first off, I have to give this movie an eight and a half out of ten. Eight I and think, a half. Yeah, I think there are wow. issues with it. It's not a perfect movie. There's stuff going on with it, but it's a really good movie. And I, I think I'm standing in pretty good company in saying that this is a good movie. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I know I'm in the minority here. And I think the last thing I'll say about it is I went to see the new Tarantino movie a few weeks ago, and it's the first time that I've ever felt like Tarantino made an objectively bad movie. And it's kind of put me in this weird spot because I keep seeing people who are going back to watch, didn't like the movie, going back and seeing it a second time and saying, I still don't like it, going back and seeing it a third time and then saying like, oh, maybe there's something here. And I do think it's possible that good directors are such great artists that we just miss the point the first few times. But I also think that sometimes we don't give enough credit to the idea that maybe sometimes a good director can just make a bad movie. And I think that's what happened here. David Fincher really is a meticulous genius. And I think in this case, he just made a movie that was bad. That is your opinion. Uh, The official opinion of the Film and Whiskey podcast is that this is a good movie. So don't listen to Bob. (laughs) We're coming out to an average of a six out of 10, which, you know, I'm satisfied with that. I know that I'm in the minority. I know, Brad, you'd probably like this average to be higher. But, you know, for a guy who really dislikes this movie, the fact that we can even meet in the middle and have an average of a six, I think, says a lot. 
I mean, I guess <laughs> what it does say is that we can give it a high score and a low score and meet in the middle. <laughs> we, my score is now the the new official low score of the Film and Whiskey podcast. Oh my gosh, Fight Club has the lowest score. Yeah, it's lower than Assassination uh, of Jesse James. I changed my score. Assess the assassination <laughs> of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is a three out of ten. Oh, Terrible fine. movie. Fine. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us for Fight Club. I know we've run long today, but it's fun to argue. We want to thank you for joining us for our second week of the September of Scotch. And if you want to reach out and rake me over the coals for hating this movie, Brad, where can they find us to do so? At Film Whiskey. All of the major social media platforms at Film Whiskey. I got I got scared for a minute that you were actually just going to give my home address away. <laughs> the people who, who need to, that information to take care of you, uh, they already have it. They already know. So you can find us at Film Whiskey with an E, or you could give us a call. Leave a voicemail. We'd love to play your angry rants on air. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. And before we, before we sign off here, we just want to say once again, this has been an amazing summer. And as we enter into the fall season... We just can't wait to see who else is going to be joining our podcast. You know, what new countries are going to have new listeners. We are so thankful for you guys. Let's keep the ball rolling. If you have anything to say about the podcast, put it onto iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us. We're still a new podcast. If you get the word out there, we will be able to continue giving you great content. So keep up the great work, Film and Whiskey Nation. Oh, Film and Whiskey Nation. I love it. All right, Project Mayhem, get out there and spread the word. That's right. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. But they get, you know, embodified through Tyler Dirt. <laughs> Did you say embodified? Well, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, embodied, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> or personified. Embodied. I think it... you matched up two words there. <laughs> Embodda personified. Mm. That's what I was doing. <laughs> you want to correct it or do you just want me to leave that in the podcast? Nah, just leave it. Let's keep no, going. Perfect. Perfect. All right. <laughs> Have you given Robots Roundtable a shot yet? This is the new show where the hosts from the Robots Radio Network podcast, all of your favorite hosts, get together every week and they talk a little bit more deeply about some of the things going on in the games and the things that they're enjoying recently. So if you're looking for a fun show talking about games, entertainment with all of your favorite hosts and also a really wacky competition at the end of each episode, Give Robots Roundtable a shot. It's available on iTunes and Spotify and basically everywhere.